0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Peter B. Collins Show, delivered to you personally by podcast from San Francisco. This program is sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. I encourage you to try to find earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980, especially if red wines give you headaches. Organic wines don't have sulfites, and many people report no headache. Click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com and enjoy a special introductory offer just for you. This podcast is the latest installment in the Boiling Frogs interview series, co-hosted with Sibel Edmonds. And today I'm proud to present strong comments from Daniel Ellsberg. And if you don't know Daniel Ellsberg, he's a hero of mine. He risked a great deal to leak the Pentagon Papers back in the 1960s and help bring the Vietnam War to its end. In today's conversation, he has sharp criticism for President Obama and his decision to escalate U.S. presence in Afghanistan. And Ellsberg talks about much more, including the new movie that recounts the events of the 60s. The Most Dangerous Man in America. If you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you to do so. I'd appreciate your comments. You can direct them by email to Peter at PeterBCollins.com. Welcome to Boiling Frogs. cross. Everybody
1: knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the
0: fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. Everybody knows.
1: NSA's illegal domestic wiretapping, FBI's national security letters, state secret privilege, TSA's one million plus no-fly list, persecution of government whistleblowers, perpetual wars, rendition and torture. Can you feel the water boiling?
0: Welcome to the Boiling Frogs. That's Sabelle Edmonds. I'm Peter B. Collins. And today, we're delighted to share a conversation with Daniel Ellsberg, who is perhaps the granddaddy of all whistleblowers. He grew up in Detroit. He attended Harvard University, got a Ph.D. in economics. He went to Quantico and uh, was a Marine Corps officer for three years in the 1950s. He had two stints with the Rand Corporation as an analyst, and he also spent time working for the Defense Department and the State Department. And he famously released the Pentagon Papers, an episode that we will discuss in this conversation. Dan Ellsberg, welcome to the Boiling Frogs.
2: Glad to be here. Thank you, despite the boiling.
0: <laughs> you can feel the heat?
2: I feel the heat everywhere but on this program. This is, uh, this is the program where we break out.
0: Well, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and I thank you for your uh, decades of activism uh, against uh, some of the foreign policy excesses by the US government. And Dan, I'd like to start by uh, asking you and Sabelle to describe the somewhat remarkable relationship that you developed over the past few years since she became a whistleblower uh, when she was fired from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And uh, so I'm going to sit back here and let you two talk about how you met and the kinds of things that you've discussed, what you have in common, and perhaps some things that you may not have agreed upon, uh over the course of this interesting relationship Sibelle why don't we start with you
1: uh sure peter uh i was on amy goodman's show uh actually i had to go to the studio and uh she had dan alsberg uh, on the phone And I didn't even know that uh, she was planning to have uh, Dan uh, uh, on this interview. And after I left the studio and I got home, I had an email from the producer from Amy Goodman's show. And uh, the producer uh, said, uh, basically was asking me if it it was okay for me to uh, have him pass my email and phone information to Dan Ellsberg. I said, are you kidding me? Of course. And uh, Dan sent me an email, and it was uh, just amazing, this, this nice, lengthy email. And uh, I, I grew up in Turkey, and even though we didn't cover much uh, history related to uh, the United States, uh, Pentagon Papers, uh, that particular uh, story was uh, always included in our uh, history textbook. So I, I knew who Dan Ellsberg was, and, and I, I've known it since the age of 13. And just the fact that I was getting this, this very nice and such a humble uh, email from Dan Ellsberg— was just amazing. So I called Dan and I was on the phone with him and with his wife, Patricia, for about almost two hours. And uh, from that day on, we uh, stayed in touch. We have been um, uh, seeing each other when he comes to Washington, D.C. We've been talking regularly. And I have learned a lot from Dan, uh, number one, as an example. Uh, but more than that, it was uh through experience, because uh, during the first uh, three, four years of our uh, relationship, while I was active with the National Security Whistleblowers Coalition, Dan kept telling me that uh, we should have these whistleblowers, you know, from NSA, from CIA, from the Department of Defense to just put the information out, because of the stuff they, 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 they would know may actually the wrongdoing. And I disagreed with them for three years. I was telling him that no, there were channels. And uh, until they exhaust all channels, they shouldn't put this information out. You know, they should go through these so-called appropriate channels. They should today because I don't really have trustworthy reliable people within the media to uh, basically have faith in and trust in to have these whistleblowers to contact these people or send their information to these people and know that it will get out, it will get within the, uh, you know, the, the public domain. And that's that's where I have been stuck since 2007. And Dan and I have been talking about that. And a good example of this, uh, Peter, is the example you always give with uh, Klein's case, where Klein... Went to uh, Los Angeles Times and he actually put out the information. He gave them the documents. He gave them the evidence. And what did they do? The reporter gave it to his editor, and the editor actually notified the government and they sat on it and they didn't print it. Well, I don't want to be in this position where I end up sending my, you know, contacts or whistleblowers to places where. This story keeps repeating itself, and it basically is going to cost them, you know, their, their, their livelihood, their, their jobs. But anyway, to, to go back to your question, Ben uh, and I go back uh, six, seven years, and uh, he is a mentor to me. He's a great friend. He has been, a, he's been always there for me and for us, for us, the whistleblowers.
2: Well, I love hearing that because Cybele uh, is a hero to me. And um, I've learned a lot from her, indeed. Uh, The more she's been putting out lately, especially uh, on her own, not waiting for the media, I learn an awful lot from because she has a perspective on our our national security problems, our relations with Turkey in particular, and uh, the relations of Turkey with Israel, and and that dimension of the whole Middle East problem is something that I, like I think most people, were totally unaware of. But uh, I remember in the earliest, actually the earliest memory that I had, Sibyl actually is, weren't we on a program together where I was, um, you, was that not another Amy Goodman program? In fact, where we were both on and I wasn't seeing you, uh, I was speaking into a camera.
1: Correct. That was the program, the first
2: Oh well, I think I was actually on that program. I may uh, have—I sent you something afterwards, but I guess I was uh, asked for a separate comment, and that's where I heard you uh, for the first time. And I was so bowled over by someone who was so clearly willing to, after a brief uh, (laughs) period—brief because you were a whistleblower, because you're complaining in the government—was willing to shut the door on that career and to to speak out and tried to speak out uh, and about matters that they obviously were very concerned that you not disclosed to the public so i was uh, i was very impressed by your audacity and by doing the right thing and let me mention one i don't know if i should but one little footnote from that uh, i wasn't able to see you during that i was just uh, as i say <laughs> tremendously impressed by what i was hearing and um, because I was uh, speaking into a camera from remote uh, location, a secure location in San Francisco, and I came home, uh, and my old 25-year-old son, I guess at that point had been watching the program, so he actually saw you. And his first words when I came in the door were, "Dad, I'm in love."
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in love too, but I, with her politics and her passion and her eloquence, and uh, that was that was confirmed later. so And uh, my wife is equally impressed, I should say. So uh, the uh, story that she tells, though, is so much like my own, in a way, because uh, she was saying Dan was right and I was wrong. Well, uh, I wasn't just speaking from uh, age-old wisdom or something. I'd simply gone through that experience. Uh, I myself had tried to go through channels, uh, through... Relatively speaking, I was going to the Congress, which is, uh, definitely outside channels for somebody who had worked for the executive branch, was still on executive branch contract at the Rand Corporation, and I had every prospect of, of going back in. But not when I gave the Pentagon Papers to Congress. That's the enemy. Uh, the, the people in the Defense Department and the, and the executive branch in general are very conscious that, um, the beans to Congress, who controls the budgets and who can have, in principle, have hearings and investigations and even subpoenas, that's far more dangerous and far more traitorous, to use the word that they do use, treachery, uh, than giving it to the Soviets. The Soviets, or the Russians, don't control budgets, don't, you know, who cares what they know, basically. And as a matter of fact, a lot of this information was information we were giving to the Soviets, uh, officially, privately, secretly. Uh, in the form of threats. So they knew the threats that I was trying to expose. It was Congress and the public from whom those threats were secret, because they would have worried at the escalation that was in store. So uh, I went through really 21 months of uh, trying to get that out through hearings uh, and in other forms before I finally went to the newspapers. And uh, I felt that was, I've felt ever since that that was wasted time. And the, the the message that I've been trying to give people like Sabelle and her, the people she's talking to now, is the message uh, twofold. Don't do what I did. Don't simply talk to your superiors. Don't just uh, try to set them straight and talk truth to power inside channels. Uh, power pretty much knows what you have to say, it turns out, and are free to ignore it, and they do ignore it. And they're quite happy with your having those views, as long as you keep them inside the system. It's going to Congress or going to the public that makes trouble. But like Sibel. I did go to Congress first in hopes they would put it out, and like Sibyl, I was simply put off. And they didn't say they wouldn't. I had almost the same experience. They would hold hearings, that's what Sibyl heard from Henry Waxman and others. And uh, all we need is to be in the majority. And then the majority comes in 2006, no hearings. Uh, same experience, there never were hearings that Fulbright had promised on uh, the Pentagon papers, even after the po- after the Times published them. Uh, they chose not to hold them because they were after all Democrats, and uh, the Pentagon papers largely exposed the Democrats, as Hubert Humphrey said at the point where at the time when they weren 't sure exactly uh, for sure who had given the papers, Humphrey made the comment to the Nixon White House with whom he was in contact. Uh, no good Democrat could have put these out, meaning they embarrass the Democratic Party. And I've been a Democrat all my life. I don't remember ever voting anything but Democrat. Uh, but obviously I was not and am not the kind of good Democrat that he was talking about, which is someone who puts party above country, above the Constitution, above your oath, uh, as if you took an oath to the party when you joined the government, which which you don't uh, explicitly But implicitly, that's the way people act. That's what they think they've
0: done. Dan, uh, I'd just like to offer that uh, my contact with Sibel began with a series of radio interviews, and I didn't see a picture of her or see her in person. uh, And don't
2: get the full benefit. Of course, sometime after. You know that what you're hearing is not simply a reaction to this gorgeous uh, person.
0: (laughs) But the thing that really struck me, was that during a time of uh, jingoism in this country, where patriotism had been redefined in a dark and snarky way, she really impressed me as a, uh, someone who is a citizen but not born here, who really embraces uh, the true uh, potential of our Constitution and our form of government. And I felt that over the series of conversations that I had with her, that she set an example of what a, a real American is and what real American values are at a time when they were being twisted, distorted, and spun into something that I barely could recognize.
2: Well, that's the impression I've had from what I've understood from talking to her, that we're not hearing just the, uh, though not to deprecate this, but just uh, a convert uh, who has uh, wanted to come to the u.s. for a better income or something and who perhaps studied our traditions and our bill of rights and other things in order to pass a uh, a test uh, to become a citizen Uh, that's a fine way that does put it more in the minds of recent uh, immigrants and recent citizens than it does for a lot of other people but in her case she was one of those many, many, many immigrants who came to a land of freedom, who came to the U.S. because she already had these values, and she wanted to come to a country where she understood they were appreciated and they were enacted. And so we are hearing someone who, I think, uh, at least at the time she became a citizen, And uh, it's a delicate point because the last few years have been quite disillusioning about the country she came to, the country I was born in, uh, no way around it. Uh, You could decide that we're still freer than most big countries. But in terms of living up to our ideals or uh, what we're taught, uh, our ideals are very far from it, and and worse now in recent years than in, in the past.
0: Now Sabelle, I should have set up a webcam so I could see you blush, but hope-
1: I I was just going to say that.
0: <laughs> Hopefully you're finished by now. <laughs> so go ahead, Sabel. What would you like to say in your defense?
1: <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Uh, it 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 has been a wake up call. Uh and it should be a wake up call to all. And that I see that more people are getting to see. uh, what we've been going through and and what we have been giving up and what we are giving up and we are continuing to give up in terms of our our liberties and all the notions that I truly believed and that was, I believed it. I mean, I literally believed it, the notion of separation of powers. Well, separation of powers does not apply anymore. Did not apply in my case, but since my case, we have been seeing this in case after case after cases where the executive branch overrides the courts, whether it's through the state secret privilege or any other executive privileges. Same thing with the Congress. Basically, Congress has been serving the uh, executive branch under both administrations. It's been the case with, with Obama. It, it was the case after 2006. The Democrats uh, became the majority both in the House and the Senate. And uh, we haven't had any hearings, I mean, meaningful hearings. Uh, I'm not talking about some of these, you know, dog and pony show hearings, but the real hearings or real screaming for accountability. And so so the separation of powers is, is, is out. And then you're also looking at all the constitutional rights that I truly, again, believed in. And I always say uh, whether... During our interviews, then we interview other people, or when I was being interviewed, uh, you know, by different people, that uh, when you look at, when, okay, people who are born here, they don't take the citizenship oath. And when I took that citizenship oath, I, I, I really took that oath, and, and I believed in and I really took that oath. And the oath was to protect our country and our liberties from, you know, foreign governments, and domestic, uh, domestic enemies, and the enemies were always defined as the enemies of the constitution. You know, we they did not talk about terrorists and boogeyman. Uh, okay, so you would say they, we didn't have terrorists, but the outside forces. It was to protect the constitution. Well, the only assaults that we have had and the only enemies we have had, as far as our constitution is concerned and has been concerned has been coming from our own government because the terrorists did not attack our constitutions, our way of life. The attack has been coming from our own government, so that that should be the true wake-up call for all and as I said, not only my case, the state secrets privilege I was the first victim of the Bush administration. Invoking this privilege, and then of course they went back and invoked it over and over again. So now many people know about the state secrets privilege, but the outrage is not there. The outrage that this this first of all is not even a law. It's not even law. It's, it's not constitutional. It's a, some kind of an executive privilege uh, based on common law. Or when we are looking at all these excessive secrecy that has gotten to this level that. Nobody could have even imagined of, and yet we are not seeing that true outrage. And this is why we named our show "The Boiling Frogs." The water has been getting warmer and warmer, and it's hot. It's boiling, and people are not jumping out of this tank, saying, "Wait a second, this is not this is not our country, and we need to do something about this." Maybe they thought during the last elections. I'm sorry. Um, this is supposed to be interviewing uh, Dan
2: Alpert. No, oh, I, I I love it. So what you're saying, of course, I agree with. Let me extend it uh, one step further. Uh, the frog, uh, the the uh, frogs are now in a in a pot, supposedly, with a new president. Uh, and yet, when you mention the state secrets privilege, of course, you're aware. Obviously, and you just didn't mention it, Sibel, That. Obama has invoked the state secrets privilege, and not only promiscuously and over and over again, but using exactly the same arguments uh, and the same arrogance about it that uh, Bush did. Uh, On the matter of the state secrets privilege and secrecy in general, despite his promises of transparency, which he has blatantly violated, uh, his administration on these matters of civil liberties and constitutional matters is not distinguishable from the Bush administration, and that I described as an executive coup earlier against the Constitution. Uh, I didn't really expect that a president, uh, a new president of any party, would actually eschew powers that had been bequeathed to him by his predecessor, no matter how abusive those powers were. It was up to Congress, it was up to the public, as you say, to, to demand that he do that. Even so, uh, I have to say I was—I've been amazed at how he has not obscured, he hasn't hidden, the continuity between his abuses, his abuses, and those of uh, the Bush administration. They've been so such a blatant, arrogant continuation that I've been amazed. It's actually given me a uh, a new sense of why, you know, taking his title, the audacity of hope, why hope requires audacity. And I would say it's for this reason. Uh, To hope is not to be certain. Uh, To hope, you know, uh, when you hope, you know that your hopes may not be fulfilled. You may be disappointed. Uh, It's almost a definition of hope. But when you hope the way we did when Obama came in, that he encouraged, you do risk. You take a risk uh, that your hopes will be blatantly violated, that they will be mocked, pissed on, uh, that they will be dashed to the ground in a way that's humiliating and that makes you feel that you've been played for a fool, that you have been foolish, that uh, someone has fooled you because he knew he could fool you. Uh, it's enraging, uh, depressing, humiliating, and that's the position we're in. Take take the beginning of this program, uh, the boiling frogs theme, that you, that you and you, the list of offenses you were talking about. Those weren't just Bush offenses. Uh, virtually all of them are continuing under Obama in a way that we really, to a degree that we really didn't expect. Uh, certainly I didn't, and I don't think many people did. And uh, that is going to make it a lot harder for people to hope once again to be fooled this aggressively.
0: Well, and Dan, I had, I thought, appropriately lowered my expectations of uh, the incoming <laughs> Obama administration. But I have been uh, shocked and disappointed. that, uh, And and my modest expectations were not that we would see a radical shift to the left, but that we would see a return to constitutional rule. Simple.
2: Well, you know, he was a teacher of constitutional law, so that seemed encouraging. I've been forced to reflect that... uh, in my hometown here at Berkeley, uh, at the Holt School of Law at, at uh, University of California, Berkeley, there is a constitutional scholar named John U, Yoo, Y-O-O, uh, and he's the author of the torture memos, the rendition memos, the memos that the president is absolutely unbound by law, by treaty, by constitution, by anything, uh, that, that we have a, we have a president of unlimited powers, and this man teaches constitutional law. It will sound rhetorical, it'll sound extremist for me to say this, I, I know, and yet I've come to the opinion, uh, it's not clear that in his actual choices as president, uh, this constitutional scholar we have in the Oval Office is has views any different from those of John Yu. And those were outlier views, those were absurd. Uh, it, it's a it's a shame to the University of California that they gave him tenure having written some of those views. He's entitled to have those views, you, let's say. He's not entitled to act on them in violation of his oath to uphold the Constitution, and neither is Obama. But take the things that were listed. Uh, Obama, in his speech on December 1st, uh, had the moxie to, to look the public in the eye he was addressing the Afghans, I think, but the world. And he looked straight into the camera and he said, uh, we were attacked on 9-11, which is true, uh, by a gang. And uh, he said, we were acted in defense of our security, of our homeland, and of our precious values. That's not an exact quote, but of our of our most precious values, the values we hold dear, something to that extent. And I couldn't help but think, on 9-12, the day after 9-11, the president was busy subverting the constitution by planning to attack a country that had not attacked us, uh, fooling Congress, deceiving Congress as Lyndon Johnson did into a war of aggression. In this case, a clear-cut war of aggression. Uh, the illegal surveillance was undertaken on days after 9/11, very deliberately, uh, and uh, the uh, warrantless wiretapping that was going on, the renditions, the program of torture torture, which was clearly uh, a direct response of the administration to this attack on us. Was that a defense of our fundamental values? Is torture a fundamental value? Kidnapping, rendition, aggressive war? Uh, For a president to have said that that's what we were doing under his predecessor, Bush, was an insult to the American people. Uh, to anyone with any any sense of memory as to where we've been in the last eight years. And, of course, it was in the support of continuing that unconstitutional action. Uh, Let me say very definitely, I feel we are now in the hands of a con man. I feel conned by a clever uh, Illinois politician uh, who is uh, indistinguishable in his foreign policies from The person that I preferred him to, Hillary, I don't think Hillary Clinton would be any different in these policies. Uh, Granted, there is some difference, especially in domestic matters and especially in rhetoric, from John McCain. And uh, there are measures on which they're better. He is distant from John McCain, but he is just as different, distant, just as distant from what this country needs and what the world needs and what the demands of his constitutional oath require as he is from John McCain. And that's a shame.
1: Once again, I agree with uh, Dan. And I ended up actually calling him in writing on my website. I, I characterized him as a con man, as a snake oil salesman who very deviously marketed and sold those empty, hollow promises. And of course, with the support of all his financiers and the media. Because his track record, Dan, if we were to look at his track record, if he had done so, I did. I did not vote for him. I did not vote for McCain either. I have been calling for independence when it comes to our politics because of the state of our parties, the two-party system. But his record was pretty clear, Dan. His record said this man had never taken a stand on any of these civil liberties issues. In fact, he supported the immunity for the at and he never, ever objected in any way in the Senate to any of Bush's policies, or whether the assaults on our civil liberties or war-related, none. So then during the campaign to come and put this face on and say, these are the promises I'm making, well, his past said he did not carry those characteristics. He did not do it in his past. They were only words, and we bought and people bought those words. That turns out to
2: be, in my opinion, the way it is and the way it has been. Now, in defense of those uh, who had more hope in him, even those who knew his record somewhat, uh, I think one could say it was possible to say, to have hope, and to say, all right, he, he did Turn around 180 degrees on the FISA amendment, that is, on the trying to claim that the clearly unconstitutional warrantless wiretapping that is going on and was going on uh, is. Was legal by mm-hmm. that a law would uh, make it legal, as if a majority vote in the Congress could wipe out the Fourth Amendment. Uh, but that's what they uh, claimed to do, and he joined that. Now that was very disturbing. It was pretty much at that point that I began, my hopes began to uh, feel very wobbly. But it was possible to say, okay, in this half crazy country. Uh, that's what you have to say, what you have to do to get elected. He's being ambiguous. He's uh, giving these bones to the right, supposedly, so as to get elected. But maybe when he has the power, uh, he will uh, you know, look different. Uh, there's no question that he warned, that he told us he would put more troops in Afghanistan. He said that right away. To, you had to be surprised now at all. Uh, you had to believe that uh, that was just something he was saying, that was another thing, politician. In other words, it is to some degree reasonable to pick and choose what you want to hear from a politician on the grounds that uh, anything they say may be false, you know that, and including the things you don't like. So uh, maybe he doesn't really mean that, and that's possible. He's broken a lot of other promises, like ending Guantanamo but. his December speech to the fact that he promised to close Guantanamo. Well, yeah, but he hasn't closed Guantanamo, and he's not going to by the end of the year, which is the deadline he set. He had the Maxi to say, we ended torture. But he hasn't ended torture. As many news reports have come out, we are torturing people in Bagram Air Force Base, in secret prisons on that base, right now, and have been right away. So as I'm saying, the, the degree of the exhibits in these uh, in these deceptions is somewhat startling, even to me. But uh, uh, I'm saying before the election and, and up to a certain point, you could hope that perhaps uh, because he did talk so well and so eloquently, and he is a very good writer. I don't know if we ever had a president mm-hmm. who was such a good writer. Is I assume he wrote at least his first book uh, and probably a second by by himself, and it's very well written. Well, and very beautifully written. So uh, you look at that and you say, well, he's very smart, very obviously. Now, that one did not fool me. Lyndon, people are saying it right now. Up till the moment of the speech they were saying he's too smart to do this and now they're saying he's too smart to go all the way or to go further. I happen to have worked for a guy who was very smart. Lyndon Johnson was not schooled the way that Obama is. He mm-hmm. was no Harvard Law School graduate. He was not the analyst that Obama is, but he was just as smart as Obama. And so was McNamara, even in the same terms. Uh, McNamara could could hold his own in uh, in a logical uh, discussion with Obama. That did us no good. Intelligence alone. Uh, Albert Speer uh, spent most of his life in Spandau Prison after working for Hitler. Uh, once, come and said, "How somebody asked him, how could you have worked for Hitler as an architect initially, and then as the head of his whole uh, mobilization, a kind of job like McNamara's?" And he said. Uh, he said there is no correlation between intelligence and decency. Wow. Am I saying that Obama lacks decency? Uh, as president, yes. Yeah. As a person, I'm sure not. He seems to be an excellent father, a very likable person. Uh, there's no question he's a likable person. Uh, but in terms of what he is about to do to the people of Afghanistan, for what reasons? I don't know. And in, in fact, it's really hard for me to figure out what his reasons are. There are some obvious hypotheses, but they have problems. And, uh, uh, for example, I would have assumed, or uh, if I didn't know anything else, that he was doing it somehow for politics, that he felt that he would, he would lose uh, representatives, uh, Democrats in 2010, that he might lose office if he did something different. But Rahm Emanuel is reported to have been against this particular escalation. Throughout all the stories have never been contradicted. Now, if Rahm Emanuel did not, uh, Rahm Emanuel could not have opposed it if he thought that would hurt Obama politically in votes. So it can't be just that. Uh, that's really puzzling me at the moment. Uh, if Rahm Emanuel thought it was going to hurt him in the elections, Rahm Emanuel would have been the first person in in favor of it. But if Biden and Emanuel are against it, how about uh, he's he's baffled, he's bemused by the military. He has as a national security assistant the former commandant of the Marine Corps, a four star Marine general, uh, Jim Jones, who opposed the escalation. Eikenberry, who opposed it as ambassador, is a lieutenant general who was in charge in Afghanistan. So the military arguments could not have been overwhelming for this these two people uh, their their judgment is at least as good
0: and dan you let hear?
2: me so so what is it i frankly don't find it easy to see unless it is the overwhelming power in our society of those people who want to see permanent war because war is good for their business
0: dan let me just add one other layer of riddle here and that is why on earth would he have kept robert gates a republican Uh, A a Bush family, consigliere, uh, a guy who rose through the ranks at the CIA to become director by politicizing intelligence back in the the Soviet era, the Cold War. And uh, I, you know, from day one have never understood why he would have kept Gates on. I thought maybe it was so he could jettison him at this point so that he could pivot on policy in Afghanistan. Uh, but that hasn't occurred, and I'm still uh, befuddled. Right.
2: Let, me, let me add to that. Um, Ray McGovern, who was Gates' boss and wrote one of his first fitness reports, mm-hmm. where in which he commented that his ambition got in the way of his uh, of his acuity back in the cia ray mcgovern former cia intelligence analyst uh has identified gates's major characteristic as ambition and is always doing what the president he's always been a hardliner on the soviets very much and managed Totally not to foresee to, uh, that the Soviets would fall apart. In fact, he predicted strongly that the Soviets would not get out of Afghanistan. So his expertise there was biased at the time. But his major characteristic, according to McGovern, was that he would say and predict and do whatever his boss of the moment wanted him to do. Uh, that he was he was pliable in that sense, and Ray held that very much against him as an intelligence analyst, in, uh, because it conflicted with uh, telling the truth. But uh, that gave me some hope. Because I thought, well, all right, maybe he's picked him for two reasons that you didn't mention. One is to protect himself from right-wing criticism, and to show that in an area where he's not very expert, uh, he's willing to rely on someone they regard as authoritative. Uh, that that wouldn't be a that would be a, not the first person to have done something like that. And then, uh, uh, second, maybe he wants somebody who will do what he wants and not what the military wants, uh, particularly. I think at this point, uh, a better guess is that Obama really doesn't disagree very strongly with Gates or with any of these people. As I say, I don't really know. But I think that uh, Obama is not just caving in to the right here very much. I don't think he has – I'm not convinced that he at this moment, uh, as compared to, say, even a month ago, that he has serious disagreements with them. Uh, or that he's on our team, as I define uh, my team exactly. Uh, I say that I, I, uh, I think that he's not different in his, his general policies from Hillary. I think that all the $100 million that went into a fight between Hillary and uh, and, and Obama was, uh, I noticed, by the way, that I've used her first name, but that, that's an old tradition here from the Clinton years, uh, that uh, a fight between uh, Clinton and Obama here uh, was a lot of wasted money. That there wasn't that much difference between them at all, and that, that wasn't good enough. I don't. I did vote for Obama, no question, and I raised you know, did what I could to raise money for him and to support him, and I don't regret that. I don't think that was foolish as opposed to McCain. But uh, certainly, uh, the degree of belief that I had that he might be a lot better than Hillary, and I didn't expect much from her, uh, was, I think, misplaced. I don't think there is any significant difference. That's a
1: criticism. Then one topic we have visited and revisited here many times with our guests, reporters, and analysts has to do what we call as deep state. Or, the real establishment, then we were talking about whose interests they are serving, you know whether it's the military industrial complex and oil combination, or the true establishment that we don't get to see. Uh, we had Russ Baker on the show, and uh, that interview will be posted in two weeks and uh, he wrote a great book, and we have discussed this issue of the shadow government deep state. I uh, wonder how, what do you think of this uh, notion of deep state or the shadow well, government.
2: One aspect, you know, Justin Raimondo's uh, uh, antiwar.com, which I which I read uh, every day following... Same with, here. As, yeah. Uh, talks recurrently about the war party. The war party. Mm-hmm. And the essence, of it, which is very similar to what Aker is talking about, I think. He, he has a different name for it, but it's very similar. And... Um, the key thing is that it is bipartisan, uh, and that is very striking. The, you know I'm looking here, at it, just as we speak, it so happens. I just got my copy of Time magazine here, and I haven't read it yet. But look at some headlines that I notice here. One is just a headline in this book, How America's Commitment to Democratic Values is Waning in the Age of Obama. Well, that's an interesting headline, and but here's another one: Team of Rivals, Barack Obama and John McCain couldn't agree more on Afghanistan. Then <laughs> it does have a subtitle, except when they don't. Well, of course, where they don't is on the timetable, but that's no problem. McCain has been reassured and expressed his reassurance after the testimony, the testimony of who, Hillary Clinton, uh, and. Uh, Others had been appearing before him, saying, "Okay, he's good to under. He, he's glad he understands now. There is no timetable. That's just a hoax. Uh, now it's a transition. We're going to reassess eighteen months from now, or perhaps this was Gates, by the way, twenty-four months from now. There is not even, a, at most, said Gates, a handful of troops coming out then, uh, <laughs> and no, no guarantee that it will be a handful either." Uh, In short, where they disagreed, uh, it it turns out uh, that, by the way, that shows that that a public statement of disagreement can have an effect, because the right-wing criticisms of that timetable got immediate response from the White House. Say, Oh, we didn't mean that. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. We uh, we may have given a wrong impression there that uh, we're getting out at any point. His reasons for doing it were transparent a bone, throwing a bone to the people who don't want another Vietnam. He says, we don't want... Well, another Vietnam is what he has just launched. And part of that, uh, one of, I think, the greatest deceptions that's going on right now, including in that speech, is calling this escalation a surge. It is no more a surge than the first 100,000 troops we sent to Vietnam were a surge, or the second 100,000. Now, we don't have And we won't have a draft unless there's another 9-11 or unless Pakistan uh, collapses in some dramatic way. And then we will have a draft, and then we'll put hundreds of thousands of people in the Middle East, in my opinion. But in the meantime, the notion of surge implies that it's a temporary increase and it implies that it's the last increase, that it's a ceiling. Neither of those, I think, which are is the way the discussion is Is going entirely as though that's the intention. Neither of those has any reality. This is not a temporary escalation in the path that he's marked out, and it is not uh, a ceiling at all. And when McChrystal says, These are the the last request, he said the other day, the last request I expect to make, you know, unless conditions change, that's a lie. That's a hoax, uh, as it was uh, when uh, Johnson uh, kept it. When i was working for him and i helped him keep that secret i didn't tell it out i knew it was a lie and uh you know i've apologized many times for that but uh, i can't undo it uh but when he implied that uh, it was uh, not going to be uh there's nothing going to be like 500,000 troops in there when that was the figure that was being mentioned at the beginning by the way one change that um uh, Obama did make from a crystal's request uh, was uh, to go against something that uh, uh, Senator Levin also wanted, which was to uh, greatly increase the Afghan National Army, so called. And uh, Obama, very realistically, that was an element of realism, uh, shied away from that rattle of uh, dumping uh, money into people who would uh, be deserting in great numbers and have no loyalty to a corrupt government. Anyway, but the McChrystal campaign strategy is entirely based as a counterinsurgency strategy on having something like five to 600,000 troops at least. And his premise was that 400,000 of those would be Afghan. Now, if they're not going to be, What happens to the strategy, and who fills the gap? That's entirely missing from the discussion that I've seen so far. The implication of realistically not pinning your hopes at all on uh, filling those troops with Afghans is that you have to fill them with Americans. To the extent possible, we are not going to have 400,000 men or 300,000 without a draft, but it does mean we will put everybody over there we can scrape together, and that means everybody who comes out of Iraq will, after a brief visit with their loved ones at home, go to Afghanistan.
1: And this brings us back to the whistleblowers and the need for whistleblowers today, as it has been for, for decades, but especially now. We had a reporter who is uh, one of the best, as far as uh, I know of, Afghanistan as far as I'm concerned, Pepe Escobar who writes for Asia Times, and we were talking about Bagram uh, prison in Afghanistan. And although we all know about, yes, these prisoners' identities have not been disclosed, they have not been given the rights to attorneys, uh, they have never been charged with A number anything. of them are
2: being tortured. That's the other thing we've learned.
1: Absolutely, that they are being tortured. But what he told us, and later, actually, I spoke with several other sources I have, is that the government and the mainstream media, the reporters, knowingly, are keep giving us this number of 800 to 1,000 prisoners, when the number, the actual number of Bagram prisoners is somewhere between 10,000 to 12,000 prisoners. Oh.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so where are the whistleblowers, whether it's in the military or even with the torture cases? With well, the CIA? How many whistleblowers Look, I, I have we had? I come admire
2: more. Matthew Ho, H-O-H, who uh, was another person, by the way, uh, I had the same reaction I had listening to you, and very few since then. He was one of the few since you, when I listened to him on the radio, I said, here's another guy who was willing to give up his career to tell the truth and to turn down, in his case, the chance to work for Holbrook in Washington to keep his mouth shut or work for I can bury in, uh, in Afghanistan. Quite rightly, chose at this critical moment, right at the right time. Unlike me, I wish I'd done this um, when I'd been an official in the Pentagon in '64, '65, instead of waiting years later. But uh, right at the moment when the critical decisions hadn't yet been announced, although they might have been made secretly, he comes out and uh, says what he what he can, and I'm sure he will continue to do that, of course. With each week that goes by, they will say falsely, well, he's out of the loop. He, he hasn't been there lately. He doesn't know what's happening. But he's been telling us that his experience there and everything that he saw on the ground told him that the people joining the effort against us were doing it because we were there to be to expel foreigners from their district, their village, their valley, their country, and that the more people we put over there, the more their recruiting will no matter how many of them we kill, uh, more will will spring up to oppose us. That's his conclusion. And that's a conclusion of everybody who seems to have any genuine expertise over there, and Obama must have heard that.
0: And let me just mention that uh, there's a fascinating conversation that includes Dan Ellsberg and Matthew Ho. At uh, Robert Greenwald's site, bravenewfilms.org, look for Brave New Conversations, and you'll be able to find that. And I have uh, not had the opportunity to talk to Matthew Ho, but I respect what...
2: Yeah, you should. You ought to to talk to him. He's your kind of person altogether.
0: I really respect what he has done. And, Dan, uh, are there others? And can you also comment on the shift in the media landscape? Because uh, while you didn't get what you wanted from Fulbright and the Democratic Congress, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and uh, at times other newspapers... Joined the effort to defy the pre-publication ban that was uh, sought by the Nixon administration and uh, delivered by a court, at least short term, before the Supreme Court uh, overruled that.
2: Well, I do. Yes, I do think there has uh, the papers themselves have never done what they could to take credit, as I wish they would, for that wave of civil disobedience that took. Uh, that took place then. I don't think there was anything like it in mainstream uh, establishment institutions in any country. 19 newspapers defying the attorney general and uh, insisting on publishing these papers, even when they were being told that. Uh, it was against our national security to do so, and they read the papers. They looked at them. And they said, "No, we disagree. We think it's our duty uh, as the fourth estate here to to give the public this information." Well, it was it was very admirable. People asked me whether they would possibly do anything like that now. Uh, hard to say. I think if they got documents like the Pentagon Papers, I do think that they would probably get published, uh, at least eventually. Of course, Thomas Tam, who uh, told the New York Times about the illegal warrantless wiretapping that was going on, had to watch for a year uh, while they sat on that. And uh, it did eventually come out. And uh, I still think that documents might might have made quite a difference. And that's why I do tell people inside that uh, if they have documents that prove the falsehoods or the danger the reckless gambles that are being made right now i wish people would consider getting those out and uh, i'd have to agree with uh, what uh... Sibel's experience was saying and uh, from her own experience uh, i wouldn't go just to congress uh... and i wouldn't count just on uh, getting them out through the press she had very very disillusioning experience on that uh... programs like yours of course, not the place for documents, but there is the Internet right now that didn't exist mm-hmm. uh, when I was, was doing this. And uh, that does give the opportunity for putting stuff out uh, right now. And I, I hope people will consider doing that, even though it will be at great risk of their career.
0: Dan, I'd like to uh, shift now to talk about the film The Most Dangerous Man in America, and I especially want to recommend it to our younger listeners who, unlike me, were not around during the uh, Vietnam era and who might not really understand uh, the risks that you took the uh, the atmosphere, the climate that the Nixon administration had created uh, that uh, put you at at great personal risk and I think that this film deserves a, a viewing by every American, Judith Ehrlich and Rick goldsmith. Uh, Uh, produced this documentary, and I was able to watch the screening at the Mill Valley Film Festival here in California when you and the filmmakers introduced it uh, back in October. I know Sabelle has seen it at a screening in Washington. And I'd like to ask you in particular about the role of two individuals who I have special respect for. Pete McCloskey was a Republican moderate congressman from the Palo Alto area of California, and he uh, put himself on the line, both in terms of the Pentagon Papers and when he ran for president uh, in the Republican primary against Nixon in 1968. And I also have a different kind of respect for Mike Gravel. Uh, Mike is, is a little different and, you know, marches to his own drummer. Uh, but what he did back in that era as a freshman member of the United States Senate was a real profile in courage.
2: Oh, absolutely, and he had he had the guts uh, very unusually to do that. Uh, I asked, Mike, after my disappointment with the 2006 elections, which I thought would make a great difference. That was uh, one of my last serious disillusions here, uh, when the Democrats took over and not much happened for the next couple of years or since. Uh, I how, asked, how, I, how
0: can you say that they raised the minimum wage?
2: did that within the first 100 days, right? Or was it the first 100 hours? 100 hours, yeah. first 100 minutes or something like that. And they sat on that glory, you know, and they sat ever since on that one. That was one of the last big achievements that I remember, as a matter of fact.
0: I think you're right. uh, uh,
2: So I asked Mike, uh, Mike, is it your feeling that the present members of Congress are extraordinarily cowardly? And he said, no, ordinarily cowardly. He said they were the same 30 years ago. It's about the same. And uh, you know, one person who's been speaking out much more uh, strongly right now than he did in the uh, in the last eight or nine years, eight years, is John Conyers at the uh, uh, Judiciary Committee in the House. Uh, I was disappointed in his performance after the 2006 election, and he had a majority. He was chairman of the committee uh, when he was so cautious about. Uh, moving for impeachment, mm-hmm. or even investigations, which he had earlier called for. And I think that one of his major, in retrospect, one of his major concerns was that he didn't want to be accused of having gotten in the way of a Democratic president, that if he was, uh, if he was too extreme here and too uh, uh, adventuresome on this, and then we didn't get a Democratic president, he was afraid and the word fear here is, is critical, that uh, uh, he would be blamed. And blame is the other critical word. You know, It, it matters, this is an Ellsberg principle, it matters not to win or lose, but where you place the blame. And these people are very, very concerned about being blamed for anything like that. Well, now we have a Democratic president, and by golly, uh, John Conyers is speaking up, as if he's no longer afraid. And in fact, uh, uh, the president has uh, apparently complained about that, said he was demeaning him. So I give him credit for uh, for saying right now how disappointed he is in uh, uh, what's been going on. But, no, you don't see a lot of profiles in courage. And I say the, the point of all we're talking here is not to demean the president, but to speak the truth here. And what we are seeing in this president is not audacity. It's not, he is not... An audacious person. He's uh, in the sense that he led us to hope uh, that he might be. Our, our hopes were disappointed in that respect.
0: Uh, let me just comment because I, I certainly share your respect for Chairman Conyers, um, but uh, I'm disappointed that uh, he has been very diplomatic and very nuanced in his critiques of uh, the Obama administration for tabling single payer uh, back in the earlier part of uh, 2009. Uh, for failing to agree to sensible amendments to the Patriot Act. And uh, while I understand the Maybe position. Right,
2: but I have the impression that he's been critical enough of those as to irritate the president. Maybe he hasn't gone far enough, but that, he's in the right direction there. Well, I, I share Got that. The issues it. of single payer and, uh, and the other one uh, you mentioned that. Um, now, will, the real test will be is he prepared to do investigations and to subpoena people as he was not prepared to do, very disappointingly, uh, under Bush? Uh, is he prepared to have hearings? Uh, I don't know if Esther uh, would, her, her experience in asking for hearings has been totally uh, frustrating and disappointing, but I continue to say I think that public pressure on Congress, and a lot of them are unhappy. With the escalation, and unhappy with a lot of other things, well, the test of where they, who they are, and their character, and their spine, and their. willingness to uphold their oath to the Constitution is not whether they're willing to whine and complain and say, we're unhappy, but their willingness to use their constitutional powers to investigate, to hold hearings, to do what Kucinich is calling for right now, which is to say an up or down vote uh, on escalation. And on the funding for it, Barbara mm-hmm. Lee has a bill for uh, denou- uh, for denying funding, and Feingold has said he's willing to do that in the Senate. I, don't, I haven't seen him do it yet, but to uh, hold hearings and to question uh, supplying the money for this. Now, they won't. I'll predict they will not succeed in that, but at least it will show. It will. It will show us who is willing to mm-hmm. act in actual. Uh, uh, to uh, uphold their oath to the Constitution and to make the decision on war and peace, as opposed to deferring to the decider, the new decider, the commander-in-chief, who uh, so few people seem to realize he is not our commander-in-chief, he's not your and my commander-in-chief, he's commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And that job description does not include deciding whether to go to war Mm -hmm. or not.
0: Um, well, Dan, I, I certainly share um, the respect for Congressman Kucinich and the strong positions that he has taken. Likewise, uh, Congresswoman Lee, Lynn Woolsey, chair of the Progressive Caucus. Yeah, those
2: um, are the votes you'll have. but, but my, <laughs> you my, Waters and uh, right. a handful of others. But, but my feeling
0: and is and that Obama...
2: The and the others will continue to cover themselves with shame.
0: And my, my feeling is that Obama decided pointedly uh... to put pressure on chairman conyers to set an example for other democrats to stay in line and uh, I, i'd like to hear your comment on this because i i've come up with a, a way of characterizing uh... obama's treatment of his base the progressive left and you'll recall that reagan was referred to as the teflon president Well, my uh, uh, little gambit here is that DuPont has come up with a new and improved left left (laughs) lawn and that Obama is impervious to challenges from his left as he continues to court the right and the the military-industrial complex and the Wall Street corporate interests. And it appears that he expects this left lawn to hold, and that's why he had to spray a little extra on John Conyers.
2: Well, you know, to call the, the progressive left his base is, would be misleading, I would say.
0: Well, the, 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 this uh, is I the group that got him the Iowa caucus.
2: a progressive leftist has, was polluting themselves quite a while ago. I was not one of those.
0: Well, but, but my point is that it, it really was in the early stages ago, in Iowa that Obama was the clear uh, anti-war candidate. Yeah. And that is what. Well,
2: yes and no. Let's remember now. What uh, I don't. I don't say this was absolutely clear to me before. But he's been called an anti-war candidate uh, continuously before the election and afterwards. That uh, That's where he was elected. Let's remember that he really did say that uh, right all along. That Afghanistan was the good war. Afghanistan was uh, was the just not just the just war, but the good war, and that he intended to increase forces in Afghanistan.
0: Now, the the uh, increase there was a
2: difference between his first seventeen thousand that he sent over there in March almost reflexively, yeah, perfectly obvious. He'd just been in office. He had said he would send more troops, uh, and it, that didn't transform the the character of the war. What he's doing now really is different. Uh, he is—he's virtually going to war in a, in a new war, a war that's open-ended, indefinite. There's no limit to the number of troops he's going to put over there. The only limit I would say is the number that he can get out of Iraq and get on. He has, you know he hasn't taken many out of Iraq that's so right. far. That's right. That's right. I expect that he will over time, and they will go to Afghanistan. So this is—he uh, really is doing a new war here with no more benefit of hearings than any of the other wars in the last eight years.
0: And Dan, the the only finer point I would put on it is that uh, he offered uh, some rather broad statements about Afghanistan during the course of the campaign. And as I recall, it wasn't until his acceptance speech in Denver, when he sealed the nomination, that he explicitly said he would send more troops to Afghanistan. And then in one of the debates with McCain, he accepted the notion that the surge had worked, and again, embrace the uh, his commitment to put more troops in Afghanistan. But prior
2: all before the election. So one thing you can't say is that he's betrayed a promise to end the war in Afghanistan. He really didn't make.
0: No, I I wouldn't I, say that. I
2: plead guilty uh, among some other other people for hoping that that was one campaign promise he would break.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> but of course, you've
2: raised the point. How is it that he feels so free to break the promises we want him to keep? And to keep the promises we wanted him to break, we on the left or the progressives, or whatever i don 't fully this look it 's not a secret as to where the money is in this uh, in this country uh, uh, money 's interests lie, uh, but even so it 's somewhat perplexing to me the degree to which presidents do quite openly tack to the or I don't know what the nautical term is but bend to the uh, the whims and the wishes of the right wing, as though they're afraid of the right, afraid of the military, to the extent that they do. I would like to know more of exactly what fears, what is the concrete nature of his fears of what would happen if he defied the crystal, if he defied the top military uh, in a way that he seems unwilling to do. One one notion would be that he fully agrees with them. But I don't think that that's not a sufficient answer here because... I can't understand why the military are saying what they're doing now, the top military. Mm-hmm. I can understand Matthew Ho, the former Marine combat rifle company commander. I was a rifle company commander in peacetime. He was a rifle company commander in wartime in Iraq. And uh, we both thought of it as the best job we ever, we've ever held. And, uh, yeah, he can see through this. I can, very, can see through it. Uh, Jim Jones, Commandant of the Marine Corps, can see through it. so what is it? What are these other military doing, choosing this war, this hopeless, endless war there will be There is no reason in the world to believe that our experience will be any better than that of the Soviets. Just as there was really no reason to believe that we would do better than the French in Indochina. But we said then, well, the French have lost two wars, and we have a lot of helicopters, and uh, we shouldn't learn from that experience. It turns out we can't learn from the Soviet experience either. And there's really no basis for that. Uh, the people who think we should have won in Vietnam were wrong. Uh, believe that we had one hand tied behind our back, we didn't use enough air power, we weren't ruthless enough, and we had an anti-war movement, we had the students, et cetera, et cetera. The Russians didn't have any of those problems. They didn't have an anti-war movement. They didn't have a student movement. They used air power quite ruthlessly. They killed a million people. They killed a million Afghans in the course of losing thirteen to fifteen thousand of their own people. They did not tie one hand behind their back, and they couldn't win. And they're te- they're willing to tell us now why it wasn't a huge surprise. Uh, they failed to learn from our experience in Vietnam. They failed to learn from the British experience in Afghanistan. That is not the place to prove your military uh, expertise and competence in taming. Uh, in taming people, in pacifying them. Uh, Afghans don't pacify, and uh, you don't tame them. And we're not going to tame them there, with uh, not with 30,000 troops. I don't think there is an official in Washington, civilian or military, who believes that we will achieve success in any of the limited terms that have been laid out, in any terms whatever, with 30,000 more troops. Or a hundred thousand altogether, or eighty thousand more troops. Now McChrystal may believe that he's would be successful if he had six hundred thousand troops. I think he's wrong, but uh, he may believe that he doesn't believe that he's going to do it with eighty thousand troops. So that's the first of many frustrating, you know, hopeless requests. Uh, that he's going to make, uh, many of which, I'm afraid, as of now, will be fulfilled unless we find a way to stop it where it is. It's not going to stop at 100,000 American troops without uh, a kind of uh, effort in our society that we have not seen, that I don't see forming at this point, and that, I'll tell you frankly, I don't know how to, uh, to help mobilize, but I'll do my best.
0: Dan Ellsberg, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for sharing this time with us. Is there anything you'd like to add as we wrap up?
2: <laughs> well, uh, congratulations on your program and on Sebel's program. Uh, it is possible to, uh, especially nowadays, with the old, with things like podcasts, which didn't used to exist, and the Internet, and uh, uh, in general, to, to get the truth out, even when the media, which is now clearly complicit on the whole with the war party it's part of the war party on the whole but there is an alternative press it used to be uh little things like the la free press in Mm -hmm. print but uh, now it has a bigger circulation than that on the internet and i really wish you well in getting the word out
0: daniel ellsberg thank you for joining us on the boiling frogs
1: thank you doc
0: bye (laughs) Give me
2: absolute control over every living soul And that have a sandy naked, that's an order Take the one tree that's left Stump it up the hole in your culture Give me that back of burning wall
1: Give me this time. Leo Cohen and the future. The future. Well, that depends on us. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with more Boiling Frogs interviews.